Welcome to PM Lessons Learned, a podcast for project managers, helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Increase your PM knowledge, build business relationships, increase your effectiveness, increase your marketability, gain professional support. Join our group and take part in our conference calls. Details at pmlessonslearn.com. Hello, and welcome to the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Call and Podcast. This is podcast number 166. We are recording this session on the 6th of November, 2014, and we are totally focused on the 5th edition of the PMBOK Guide. My name is Dana Safford. I'm the host of the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Calls. I've been a PMP since version 2 of the PMBOK Guide. I'm also a certified ITIL version 3 expert and a Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. I have over 25 years of project management experience in the IT industry. I'm currently a Critical Situation Manager at Red Hat, and in this role I take a very complex situation that affects a Red Hat customer's enterprise production environment, and I manage a project with a virtual technical team that quickly resolves the issue. So remember, you don't have to have the term Project Manager in your job title to actually be a Project Manager. We're still in dire need of volunteers. If anyone would love to come help us out with all this stuff, this labor of love, we'd love to have you. All the information you need to know is on our website, www.pmlessonslearn.com. Our presenter for this session is me, of course, and our topic is PMLL Project Procurement Management Part 2, PMBOK 5E. We'll do the last three of the four processes that make up the Project Procurement Management Knowledge Area. On July 31, 2013, the 5th edition of the Guide to the Project Management Body of Knowledge, also called the PMBOK Guide, became the basis for the Project Management Professional or PMP exam. This month's PMP study group call continues the deep dive into the PMBOK 5th edition or 5E. In this session, we will finish the focus on the Project Procurement Management Knowledge Area as we look at the last three processes that belong to the Project Procurement Management Knowledge Area. It's laid out in the 5th edition. I will provide insight and practical examples for everything you need to know in order to build your critical knowledge mass and pass the BMP exam on your first attempt. If you haven't already downloaded a PDF copy of this session's presentation, please do so. If you are in a live free screen sharing.com virtual meeting room that we're in right now, the file is in the meeting resources box. When you log in, you'll also see the down arrows next to the file names. If you're not in the virtual meeting room to find out how to download the files and podcasts for all of our PM Lessons Learn sessions, go to www.pmlessonslearn.com, and in the left-hand navigation column, you'll see a link to files and presentations. Just follow that link, and it'll take you over to our file repository, where everything for the fifth edition lives, and a lot of stuff in there. In the monthly PMP exam study group call file area, you'll see the slides for this session. The file name is PMLL Project Procurement Management Part 2, 6 November 14, PMBOK 5E. It's a PDF file. And this title is exactly the same, PMLL, Project Procurement Management, Part 2, 6 November 14, PMBOK 5E. In that monthly PMP exam study group called File Area, you will also see a PMBOK 5th edition brain dump, a PMBOK 5th edition study resources file, and a PMBOK 5th edition ITTO list file. And remember, the Internet is a very big place. If you choose to study material from another source, make sure you know it's PMBOK base. Now that July 31, 2013 is far behind us, 
You definitely want material based on the Pembok 5th edition. You should remember there's roughly about a 50% difference from the 4th edition. That's my estimate. Some instructors will tell you more, some a little bit less, but roughly 50%. point is there's a lot of difference there. And it's mostly in the knowledge areas, their processes, and their ITTOs. So make sure that you have the right stuff because there are still a lot of evil people out there that will sell you material from the 4th and even the 3rd edition of the PMBOK Guide. So if the material or website you're using does not explicitly say that the material is based on the 5th edition, leave it alone, especially if you're plunking some money down. Please be careful out there. Okay, so we are PMLessonsLearned.com. Project managers helping project managers to make a difference. I'll thank you in advance for those participating in this month's live conference call and those that download and use the podcast. So let's get started. I'm going to shift over to the slide deck. And the first slide contains a summary of all the PMLessonsLearned.com free conference calls when we are at full strength, which we are not. Right now we're on the monthly PMP exam study group call and podcast. Why? Because it's the first Thursday of the month. And that's when we do these things. The other two, we haven't really started back going yet. Uh, we're really in need of folks to help us out. On the second Thursday, we'd love to have our job shop call where folks in transition or with a need to identify a potential career path can go to help each other out. And on the third Thursday of each month, we'd love to have our PM Lessons Learned Best Practices call. This call provides presentations on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. But we haven't had it going for a while because we have no volunteers to run it, things along those lines. Right, so if you have some time and want to give back to the community, let us know. To listen to any previous call, basically the monthly exam call, by phone or grab the podcast, go over to www.pmlessonslearn.com and you'll see how to do all that. And please join our Yahoo and LinkedIn groups. Both are aptly named PM Lessons Learned. So let me move on to the next slide. And we'll do our call norms. This is an interactive call. At least I'd like it to be an interactive call, but I've muted all your lines. So it's going to make it tough for you to ask a question at the moment. So you'll need to do a star six to unmute your phone. Uh, don't mind being interrupted at all. I'd rather have you ask me a question on slide seven and instead of waiting until slide 50 at the end of the presentation or something along those lines. So I can't remember anything from the top of the stairs to the bottom of the stairs that my wife tells me. Maybe you're in the same boat. So don't be afraid to interrupt me. Just do that star six. Get my attention. Yell out my name. Ask a question, we'll go back and forth a bit, and then I'll ask you to do yet another star six and remute your phone. Okay, so there's that. So let's move on to the next slide. And here's our email address if you have any questions or would like to volunteer to help out. PMP study at pmlessonslearn.com is where you should send an email off to, and we'll try to do what we can to help you out, or you help us out for that matter. Move on to the next slide. There's a bit of legalese here. The participants in this call are meant to use the contents of this session as additional study material. You all hopefully have study guides of varying ilks out there. Much of this session comes from one of those guides. It is the Project Management Professional Exam Study Guide, the seventh edition, written by Kim Heldman, put out as part of the Cybex series by John Wiley and Sons. The ISBN number is right there, so you go right to the seventh edition. That's the one you want for the fifth edition of the PMBOK Guide so you don't use the wrong thing. There are a lot of bookstores out there, both online and brick and mortar, that have the old versions there. I keep finding them in bookstores, and when I see someone with a guide, I check, interrupt them on the bus or not on the bus or in the car or in, in the station, whatever, and say, hey, what version is that? You got the right version there? And I routinely find people studying the wrong stuff, and using the wrong stuff is going to hurt you, so don't. So with the Kim Heldman stuff, the Cybex series, I'm using all this with the permission of the publisher. I'm a registered instructor with John Wiley. I'm going to move on to the next slide, the title slide. 
That's basically letting us know that we are talking about project procurement management. It's part two. It's the 6th of November, 2014. It's me, and we're looking at the fifth edition of the Pinbot Guide. So I'm going to move on to the next slide. And what you see is the big table that's in Chapter 3 of the PMBOK Guide with the 10 knowledge areas across horizontally, the five process groups going down vertically, and there's a grid there. Some of the cells have nothing in them. Some of the cells have six things in them. It depends on what you're talking about. For the session, what we're talking about, if you look down close to the bottom of the table, you see a yellow area, shaded yellow, project procurement management. That's what we're on this time around. Last session, we did... 12.1 plan procurement management, and in this session we're going to do the last three that you see there, each in its own process group. Conduct procurements is in the executing group, control procurements is in the monitoring and controlling process group, and closed procurements is in the closing process group. So they go, they flow very nicely. Speaking of flowing, let's flow on to the next slide. And here's our agenda, what we'll be going over. This is podcast number 166. We're talking about PMBOK 5E and project procurement management, and we're going to be doing, as I mentioned, 12.2, conduct procurements, 12.3, control procurements, and 12.4, close procurements. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. And we have the organization chart style view of the project procurement knowledge area, and as you see, basically set up like an organization chart in that the knowledge area name is up at the top, and there are four long boxes. Really hard to see because it's an eye chart here because they're awful small because there's a lot of stuff in there. But you see, uh, basically, there's an organization, and there's a numbering scheme there. The numbering scheme is there to help you study. All right, so if we want to talk about the expert judgment tool and technique for the conduct procurement process, we'll be talking about item number 12.2.1.2.4. All right, so there's a, that's a big numbering scheme there. It's there to help you study. It's not on the exam. But some things like expert judgment is used like 30 times in the PMBOK guide. So if you're talking about that specific instance of expert judgment, that's the number that you can use to reference things in your study groups so you can help each other out. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. So now we're looking directly at conduct procurements, process number 12.2. We're looking at a much better view of it. Now you can actually read most of it, as it turns out. This is the horizontal view, if you will, with three boxes, one each for inputs, tools, and techniques, and outputs. And we see that Conduct Procurements has eight inputs, seven tools and techniques, and six outputs. So let's move on to the next slide. And we'll talk generally about Conduct Procurements. It's basically concerned with obtaining responses to the bids and proposals from the potential vendors, and then actually choosing one and awarding a contract. And relatively straightforward. In this process, we're going to look at the responses that came back from the sellers and compare them. If you've got four or five responses, compare them, see which ones you like better on a set of criteria that we'll talk about in a little bit. And then once you've made your decision from a financial, from a technology, from a feature, from an ethical, from a whatever point of view, all that stuff smooshed together, then you'll award a contract. And the contract award is done here as well. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about the inputs. As I mentioned, there are eight of those guys, and I'll read them off in case you're riding a bike or on the treadmill somewhere in the gym. They are procurement management plan, procurement documents, source selection criteria, seller proposals, project documents, make or buy decisions, procurement statement of work, and organizational process assets. I'll move on to the next slide. We'll hit these one at a time. 
Some of these we've already gone over before in other processes, but we'll hit them one at a time here. First is the procurement management plan. We finished it as the major output of the last process in the plan procurement management. Now we're going to use it here because it describes how the procurement process will be managed in your project. Each project might be a little different depending upon your company, how big your project is, how small your project is, anything along those lines, technology that it's in. Your procurement management plan will tell you what you need to do because you figured all that stuff out in the last process. So it can be formal or informal, highly detailed, whatever you need for the scale and scope of your project. Okay? Then there are seller proposals. The seller proposals are just that. These are the things that sellers have come back to you with because you put out a request for quotation, request for a bid. You say, hey, I've got this thing I need. What do you got? And sellers, when they see that, will come back with, well, here's what we have. And they'll have a list of things based on what you told them you needed. And what you have to do is go through those. So most organizations have a preferred format for seller responses. So make sure that in your request for quotation, request for bid, you actually say that. That way it's easier for you as the project manager and the project team to go through all the responses. You don't have one response that looks one way and another response that looks another way. You put the work on the seller. All right? You don't have to do all the work. Tell them, here's the format I want, and then things will go a lot better for you, a lot quicker for you. And then there are project documents. These are the things that are used to include risk-related contract decisions included in here in the risk register is the point. The risk register is a project document. Stakeholder register is a project document. There's a big table in uh, Chapter 4. It's got two columns in it. One side is what's a project document. The other side is what's a planning document. And it's very easy to tell which is which because the project documents, like what we have here, you see the risk register on this slide, you don't see the word plan or baseline there. It is risk register. So since you don't see the word plan or baseline, that is a project document. We're up the top of the slide here in procurement management plan. Since we see the word plan or baseline, in this case we see the word plan, we know that is a planning document. And that's all that table does. But the quick way to remember it for an exam question that could pop up They'll give you a list of things. What is a planning document and what is a project document? All right, it's easy to tell. Look for the word scope or baseline. All right, let's move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about procurement documents. These are the things that you will develop in order to ask for the response to come back. These are things like requests for proposals, requests for information, invitation for bid, requests for quotation. You see the alphabet soup uh, abbreviations there as well, and there are more depends on what you're trying to buy, whatever. And there's a rhyme or reason to these as well. We sort of talked about them last time. But the rhyme or reason is if you are more interested in the technology that's being used in whatever you're buying, the quality, or something else, and not price. Don't include price in this. But you're only worried about technology, quality, something else, then the documents you want to use are the request for proposal and the request for information. And then if price is the only thing you're worried about, so you don't really care about anything else. You want the cheapest thing possible, and as long as it meets all your other, other form and fit stuff, you're all set. Then you want to use the terms invitation for bid or request for quotation. That signals to sellers what's important. Right? IFBs and RFQs, price is important, and the other stuff is ancillary, if you will. And RFPs and RFIs are set up for technology, quality, something else is the most important characteristic of what you're looking for. 
Okay, so those are procurement documents. And then we have source selection criteria. These are the things, what you're going to measure, what is important to you to look at to compare the responses that, that came back to you. Okay, is technology important? Is weight important? Is cost important? Are certain functions important? Is quality important? Is support important? You come up with a list of some number of things, anywhere from two to a dozen, however many you want, and we'll talk about how to use all that stuff in a little bit. But for right now, you want to come up with what type of methodology are you going to use in your organization to choose between the seller responses and pick someone to buy from. Okay? And then there are make-buy decisions. As you're going through this, we talked about make-buy in the last session, in podcast number 165. These are the actual outcomes of your decision, the decision tree that we use to decide whether it was worthwhile from a financial point of view only to do a make-buy which is better for you financially, to make it or to buy it. And then you have to add in ethical stuff, technology, process stuff, quality, or any, all that kinds of other things that go into your decision-making. And out of that will pop whether you're going to make or buy. This is what you decided. You're going to make it, you're going to buy it. Obviously, since we're talking about procurements, you're going to buy it. Right? That's how that works out. Okay, let's move on to the next slide. Then there is a procurement statement of work. This is something you write up that describes what you're looking for. It should be red. It should be six centimeters long. It should be 10 centimeters tall. It should be made of mahogany or you know, whatever the case might be. You've got to come up with a list of things that you want to have in this thing that you're buying, that you need in order for it to fit into your project. Right? Basically, it's the description of what you're buying. All right? It's developed from the scope. So as you're looking at how do I do this thing, look at your scope statement and see what the scope says you need. Talk to experts around. Use that expert judgment. What else you need to put in here? And then look at things like work breakdown structure and the work breakdown structure dictionary. You might have some clues in there of what you need to use in your procurement statement of work. But you're going to build that description. That's all it is. Right? Just a description of what you're doing. And then there's organizational process assets. These are the things that you can control that you have to use because you work in the organization that you work in. And basically is a checklist templates, things along those lines. And the thing I wanted to point out here is in the earlier editions of the PMBOK Guide, there was a thing called the Qualified Sellers List. It's not stated as an explicit input here for this process anymore, for conduct procurements anymore, but it's still there. They didn't go away. They just decided to give it, since it is a project document, if you will, as well, you're going to live in your OPAs. Why? Because you can change them. If you found a better seller, you can probably change the list. So that's why it's an OPA and not an EEF, Enterprise Environmental Factors, because you cannot change those. So this list basically quantifies who you can buy from. They're pre-approved. You don't have to go through a whole lot of purchasing stuff and testing and things like that. They've already passed and everything they need to pass, and you can just hand them a purchase order, say, give me 22,000 of these things, and you're done. Right, that's all that is. And it can be used for any number of parts and stationery and you know what else you're going to buy. Right? They're just pre-approved vendors. cuts down the amount of time and paperwork required to get your project done. Let's move on to the next slide. Talk about the qualified seller list a little bit more. It's also called qualified vendor list as well. As I mentioned, it's a list of sellers that are pre-approved. You don't have to do anything else in order to get things done. The procurement department was involved in the initial stuff to qualify that vendor. Okay, so you cannot do this without a procurement department involved. If you have a procurement department that you have to worry about, 
If you don't, then maybe through your experience in doing projects like this, you have a list of three or four sellers that you like to use, have used in the past, and you're going to go to them again. Same thing. It just requires a whole lot less bureaucracy when you're choosing from a qualified seller list because everything's already approved, and it's just a matter of how much do you have to buy. All right? And if the list doesn't exist, maybe you want to create one if you're going to be doing projects like this relatively often or buying parts or buying pieces of a project relatively often, build up one of these lists so you can get some headway for your next project. Go through all the preliminary stuff one time for the first time you're going through this and then use that momentum, if you will, in your other projects. And try to have a mind toward pre-qualifying so that you can make your purchase happen right away and not have to worry about going through a lot of bureaucracy. Okay, so let's move on to the next slide. That's it for the inputs. That will talk about the tools and techniques for conduct procurements. There are seven of those guys. They are, I'll read them off in case you are raking the leaves or on a bus. They are bidder conferences, proposal evaluation techniques, independent estimates, expert judgment, advertising, analytical techniques, and procurement negotiations. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll hit these guys one at a time. First is bidder conferences. Now, in a bidder conference, it's sort of what it sounds like. You're going to get all the bidders together and have a meeting, have a one-day, one-morning, one-afternoon meeting, depending on how many vendors, prospective vendors and sellers you have. And you're going to listen to presentations from each one of them. You can do it all in one day if you don't care if they know who each other are. Oh, you can do them one at a time, whatever. But you're going to get things together, and you're going to bring them in, and then you're going to ask questions of them, how they do this, how they do that type of thing and have all your questions answered in one shot, if you will. Okay. And then there are proposal evaluation techniques. These are the criteria that you will use to compare the proposals. Uh, these are the things that you need to pay attention to, size, weight, material, things along those lines. And once you have that, you've developed some type of evaluation criteria when you were doing your plan procurement management stuff, and this is just now going to put that to use. All right, so you've decided how you're going to compare one proposal against another is what this all means. All right, so let's go through a couple of these different types. So let's move to the next slide, and we're going to talk about three different proposal evaluation techniques. First is a weighting system, and weight is W-E-I-G-H-T, as in heaviness, not as in length of time waiting to do something. So a weighting system basically assigns a numerical weight to the evaluation criteria that you've set up. And then you're just going to do some math. Yes, math is involved in purchasing. And then you're going to total up the scores for each vendor, and the one with the best score wins. All right. The Pinbox says for this particular tool that quantifies the qualitative data to keep personal biases to a minimum. So what that means is way ahead of time, you've decided what's important to you. You're going to see in a minute what I mean by that. But maybe functionality Certain functionality is more important than the color of something. So functionality will have a higher weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, a higher multiplier than color will. Color may have a much lower multiplier because you don't really care what color is because it's going to be covered up type of things. So you weight things by importance. Another way to do things is independent estimates. Now, with an independent estimate, you're going out and you're talking to other people who have bought the same thing, who have provided the same thing, and we basically ask them, well, if you were providing this to me, what would you charge me for this? Now, you can either ask them or you can look on the Internet or you know, trade magazines or trade websites, trade conferences, and ask people what they would charge you for that. 
and you'll get an unbiased estimate perhaps. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But it will give you a different number is the point. You can also call these things cost estimates as well if you want to. And then you can compare things. You can compare the price of this independent estimate because this person's got no skin in the game, as we say in America. They're not involved, so they can maybe give you an impartial, is the word I was searching for earlier, estimate as to what something's going to cost. Then you compare the prices for the ones you are considering. And if there are big differences, in other words, what you're considering is a whole lot more than what the independent estimate was, then there's probably one of three different things happening. First, the statement of work that you provided wasn't detailed enough because they maybe they included a whole lot of stuff and technology and complexity that you really did not need but cost them a decent amount of money, so they have to charge for it. So your statement of work should have been in a better state, could have been more clear as to what you were looking for. Or the vendor just didn't respond to all the requirements that you laid out in the statement of work. They neglected something. They ignored something, whatever the case might be, because it's the way they do things and they don't care the way you do things. Here's what I have, use it or not type of thing. And then finally, maybe just the price on the high side, or maybe your estimate was too low. There's a fourth thing going on there, but price is not correct for whatever reason. Okay, so there's independent estimates. And then a screening system. Here you're going to use a predefined performance set of criteria, minimum requirements, if you will, maximum requirements, if you will, to screen out somebody especially for someone you know you don't want to work with. So you can figure that out by find some specific resource, some specific thing that the vendor cannot meet, must be of a certain material, and that you know a vendor who's going to reply to you or potentially reply to you is not using that material. You put that screen in there, and they won't be able to respond. So you can ignore their response because they're not meeting part of the screen. The screen is blocking them. Right, and you can use screening systems together with other tools and techniques around in this process that we just went over above on the slide here in order to rank the vendors. Here's just one thing you can use here. You can use a whole bunch and come up with the best choice for your project. Okay, so let's move on to the next slide. We'll give you an example of what we're talking about here. This is an example for a weighted scoring model. For those who don't have these slides in front of them, here's the table. I've got a table with a bunch of columns in it. It looks like six columns. The left-hand column is labeled criteria. So that's what you're going to be measuring, if you will. And in the rows of the criteria column, I've got platform, hardware, data conversion, custom modules, and training are the four things you're going to be comparing across all of the vendors. Okay, second column is the weight. That is the importance that you are placing on that particular aspect. So in this example, the platform that this is operating on, this is obviously for an IT project, the platform is more important. You want it to be Linux. You don't want it to be Windows or some other operating system. Okay, so platform is very important. So you give it your highest rating. Now, in order to keep the math down to a reasonable level, you don't need to have a score 1 to 100. You can do 1 to 5, and that's good enough. All right, so we're going to give platform a 5 rating because that's the highest rating that we're going to use. Move down to the next row. And then there's hardware. Well, we don't care so much about hardware, so we give that one a 4 or a 3. In this case, we're giving it a 4 because we don't care so much. Say this IT project is converting from one thing to another, so the conversion of our existing data is very important. We want that to be accurate. We want it to be timely, and we want it to be in a format that we can use. 
Okay, so that's important to us. We'll give that a five. And then if there's any custom stuff in there, yeah, it's okay to have custom things in there. So we'll give that a four. All right, so there's the weighting for each of those those uh, criteria. And now all you have to do is, depending on how many vendors you have responses from, in this case we have four, A, B, C, and D, you basically will rate them. Rating a one to five now, so five levels is plenty for where they fit. Five being the best match, one being very little match. So vendor A came with their proposal, and for platform we gave them a three. All right, For hardware we gave them a three. We're also rating a 1 to 5 now, so maybe they're in the middle. They're not the best choice, but again, to 1 to 5. So platform is a 3, hardware is a 3, data conversion is a 3, and custom modules and training is a 4 for whatever reason. All right, so then you do the math. And then if you have the slides in front of you, that's why you see 15 for vendor A because it's 5. The weighting is 5. The value is 3. So the total is 15. Do the multiplication. 5 times 3 is 15. So you get a 15 for platform, 12 for hardware, 15 for data conversion, 16 for custom modules. It's just the math. The weighting times the score you gave that vendor. And then you total them up. Down the bottom row is the total. So the score is 58 or vendor A. And then you do the exact same thing across all the rest of your vendors. You give them a rating for that particular criteria, you multiply by the weight, and you stick that number into the table. All right, so for this table here, you total it all up. We look down the bottom, we see the scores. And in my example, the, the scores range from 53 to 68. Vendor A is 58, vendor B is 54, vendor C is 68, vendor D is 53. So vendor C did a very nice job of meeting a lot of things. They got a 68. They got a high score. All right? So they're the vendor that you want to choose strictly from this weighting point of view. Right? Now you also have to put in a bunch of other things as well, business, capability, financial status, things along those lines uh, for choosing your vendor. But at least from a feature point of view, a criteria point of view, they're your winner. And that's how weighting systems work. Pretty easy. Any questions on that before I move on? There's nothing I'm going to move on to the next slide. And then we'll get into some more tools and techniques here. Now we're talking about independent estimates. These are also called should-cost estimates. These are what I talked about earlier, you know, just what would it be. And you can use them uh, to compare things, as I mentioned already. It basically solicits opinions of expert judgments or, or things that you paid for in the past or other folks that you know paid for the same service, the same part whatever the case might be, and you compare them to what you have. Then there's advertising. Of course, you want to let people know, let sellers know that you're advertising for bid. You want to buy something. Here's my request for proposal, my request for quotation, depending upon what's important to you, and please respond. You can either throw that out onto something that will broadcast it for you, or you can go hunting yourself from the selling company's website or something like that, hit to contact us and point your document at them and see if they want to respond. And you can also, in the past, newspapers, journals, things like that were used as well. Maybe not so much. Eh, they probably still are. There's still a lot of trade magazines out there. And then this expert judgment. You're going to seek out other project managers and procurement managers for their inputs so that you know you're on the right track. These folks know where the potholes are. Let's move on to the next slide. And then we have procurement negotiation. This is where now you settled on somebody that you want to try vendor C in this case from the table we had before. Now you're going to start discussions to make sure that every little piece is correct. 
Okay, you over each one of those criteria again. State what you want. Let them state what they're providing. Does that match? Yes, great. Does that not match? Well, no. Okay, what's the gap? And figure out what the gap is and fix the gap somehow. You meet somewhere and agree on things. And eventually going to come to contract terms or agreement terms. The fifth edition likes to use the word agreement, as you'll see in a moment. But contract still works as well in a lot of places. And it's going to cover price, responsibilities, whatever laws or regulations they have to apply, they have to adhere to, a better way to say that. And do your negotiations as part of the process uh, itself with its own inputs and outputs so that using classic negotiation techniques, there are tons of classes out there that will tell you how to do negotiations. And use your negotiation skills as well, as I mentioned in those classes. They'll teach you something called fait accompli. It's an exam bullet down here. That big red dot means it's an exam question that has been on the test recently. A fait accompli means it's a fact realized or accomplished. In other words, it's given. All right? So just be aware of that. It's a strategy. So we always knew that, that X was supposed to be made of wood. You know, this component was supposed to be made of wood. I made mine of wood. Why would you want one made of granite? You know, fait accompli. Just be aware of them so that you don't get caught by surprise. Okay, move on to the next slide. We're talking about analytical techniques now. These are just techniques that you can use to get down into the middle of the seller's response and decide what it is you're going to do. You can look at each individual vendor's capabilities from a financial point of view, from a longevity point of view, whatever the case might be. We already know that from a feature point of view, vendor C was better, right? Well, now you're going to look at all the other things. Maybe vendor C is ready to file for bankruptcy for Chapter 11 in the U.S. here. So maybe you don't want to go with them because you don't think they're going to be around very long. You might want to go with the next one down, the next highest score. But you have to do that research. Those are the analytical techniques that we're talking about in this tool and technique. So use whatever source you want, internet, industry guides. There's a lot of industries out there that publish material information to do this type of thing. And you can also, as the bullet there says here, you can also use the internet to purchase stuff who hasn't bought something off the internet. And if you're only worried about a price, then have at it. You don't have to do any negotiations. Just go to the website and buy 22 of whatever it is you're looking for, and you're done. They publish their specs. So the Internet has sort of helped facilitate purchasing to a great extent. And you have to be careful about those Internet searches, though. The bottom bullet down there is if you've got something really complex, wicked complex, as we say here in Boston, wicked had, another way to say that here in Boston, probably don't want to use just a straight Internet, let's buy it. You probably want to talk to them, negotiate price and features and things like that. You could if you want to, but there's risk involved. And if you were willing to accept the risk, fantastic. Things will go faster for you. Speaking of going fast, let's move on to the next slide. And that's it for Tools and Techniques of Conduct Procurements. Any questions on that star six to unmute your phone? Nope. Okay, I'm going to move on. And we'll talk about now the outputs for conduct procurements. There are six of those. I'll read them off in case you are on a plane or walking the dog. They are selected sellers, agreements, resource calendars, change requests, project management plan updates, and project documents updates. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll hit these one at a time. Selected sellers, pretty easy. Here's the winner. Here's the, here's the company. Here's the person, whatever the case might be, that you've chosen for your variety of reasons and your analytical techniques and your weighting system and all this other stuff came together, and this is the seller you chose. All right, so it's the output of this process. Here's what you're going to pick. 
And now what you have to do is some agreements with them. You have to do that negotiation that I talked about in the tools and techniques and actually come up with an agreement or what used to be called contract, procurement contract, still is called contract in a lot of places, but be aware of the term agreement and contract are used interchangeably in the exam. And basically it is a legal document. It is a negotiated draft of your legal document to bind both of you to purchase and sell a thing of specific quality, form, fit, and function, if you will, for a specific price. All right, so it can take different forms depending upon how formal your project is. It might just be a handshake, word-of-mouth thing. It might be a 20-page bound volume or something like that. It all depends what you're buying. You can use a purchase order. You can use a pre-filled uh, contract template is what I'm trying to search for, a work order against an existing contract or something else, whatever you might happen to have that works in your company and works for the seller as well. And remember, they're legally binding, so make sure there's enough stuff in there to protect yourself in case something happens, because you know, what could possibly go wrong in a project with a procurement? Hundreds of things can go wrong, so make sure you cover yourself. Big example down here, contracts have several names, as I mentioned. They can be agreements, memorandums of understanding, or uh, MOUs, subcontracts, purchase orders, anything along those lines. Make sure you, for the exam, know all those. Let's move on to the next slide. A bit more about contracts and agreements. The type you award will depend upon what you're buying, as I already mentioned, and your organizational policies, whatever they happen to be, which would have been in your procurement management plan and maybe even in your scope statement. And so everything flows, if you will. The example here is the contract or procurement agreement should clearly address what's in the statement of work. In other words, you can include the statement of work as an addendum to the contract is a good thing to do. Make sure it's all there. Make sure all the time frames you're looking for, that your pricing's there, how you're going to pay is in there, your acceptance criteria, how you're going to resolve disputes. We'll talk about disputes in a couple of slides from now. How you're going to measure performance, the change request process, change process, penalties, incentives, whatever you want to do. Remember all the contract stuff we went through in the last session, all the different contract types. Well, you can have penalties and incentives in contracts as well. You know, all that stuff is in there. And remember, because they're legally binding, you are obligating your organization to fulfill the terms of the contract. So make sure you do the right thing. Make sure you have enough people review it so that you're not making a mistake. Okay, and the last example down there is make sure you understand your organization's policies on contract review and approval before you carry on. Do you have to have three levels of legal review or do you have to have any legal department review? or management review, or you need a vice presidential signature or the CEO signature to go outside and buy something. Make sure you know what it is so you don't get yourself in trouble. Let's move on to the next slide. So now, just like a lot of other things in project management, contracts or agreements have life cycles. All right? So uh, make sure you know what the life cycle for your contract process is all about. Normally, contracts will have four, at least four phases to a life cycle. I'm adding a fifth one from what's in the PMBOK. I'll read those off. They are requirement, requisition, solicitation, award, and I'm adding administration. So let's go to the next slide, talk about those guys. First is requirement. Now, basic is what it sounds, is for inside your project, this is the equivalent of the plan procurement management process, okay? So what you're going to do is make sure you understand what it is you're going to do in your procurement. Right? You're going to establish what the project is, the contract needs, find all the requirements, write the statement of work, 
and make sure all the objectives in there are the correct objectives. You might develop the work breakdown structure that you want the seller to use, or if you did a make-buy analysis, you could include that if you want. And then you can put anything in there you want, but these are the requirements that you're putting together in order to define what it is you're going to buy. Two big examples that's down there is the buyer provides the statement of work to describe the requirements of the project when it's performed under contract. All right, so if you're going to do something under a contract, the buyer is going to provide that because the buyer is the one that's putting their money out. Okay, and then the second bullet down there is the product description can serve as a statement of work as well. So if you've got an easy one and not a very difficult one, you can just use a description if it's detailed enough. Chances are it may not be, but and it's risky to do that. But you can. It's okay to do. It just might be a little bit of risk there. Be aware of it. Move on to the next slide. Then there's the requisition phase of the agreement uh, contract life cycle. And in this phase, everything's going to be refined and confirmed. We're going to make sure everything is what we want. We're going back and forth with the seller a bit to make sure that everything is in place. We're doing the right thing. We know exactly what we have happening, and we know exactly what we're going to do. This is what we're going to build things like the RFPs, the request for proposals, the request for information, the request for quotation. All that stuff is built in here. And the project manager is generally responsible for doing that, doing the building of that stuff. Right? And well, you want to have a review of it to make sure that if you already have qualified vendors in place, how much detail do you really need? That will depend on your vendor and your qualified vendor list. So check that out as well. And the requisition phase occurs during the plan procurement management process as you work all that stuff out. Okay. Let's move on to the next slide, which is solicitation, the solicitation phase of the agreement slash contract life cycle. Now here's where you're actually going to pop out your RFPs, your RFQs, your RFIs, and see what comes back. All right, so you're transmitting them out, and you can use the tools and techniques of the conduct procurements process during this contract stage. That's what the second bullet says. And what you have coming back into you are the seller proposals that we talked about a couple slides ago. All right, so that's the solicitation phase. Get everything back, then you have to figure out what you're going to do, okay, which is the next slide. So let's go there. That's the award phase. We just finished talking about the award phase. You've figured out everything you need. You've got your waiting system. You have all your other analytical techniques that you're using, and you're choosing somebody, choosing from however many vendors responded to your project, all right? So you've chosen them, and you're going to award them a contract or an agreement in order to move forward, and that's done during the award stage, all right? The conduct procurement process is the equivalent of the awards phase. And then the project manager or some other selection committee, depending upon how big your organization is and what policy you have, are the people who receive the bids and proposals and applies everything and figures out who the winner is. You can do it as a project manager. You can have someone else do it is the point there. And then you're going to figure out who it is and then negotiate with them and write the agreement, write the contract. All right, let's move on to the next slide. And this is when I'm adding, this is the final phase, if you will, and that's administration. Because once you have a contract, there's stuff you have to do. We're going to see in the control procurement process, you're not done. You still have to watch and see what's happening. You have to monitor. You have to make sure that the vendor is performing what they said they would do when they said they would do it. Right? And so that's all going to be administered as well. So just be aware that you've got to pay attention to all those things and make sure things are going along smoothly. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. 
and then we'll get into a couple more outputs, and then we'll be done with this process. Next is resource calendars. Everything has a calendar, uh, even bulldozers and dirt has a calendar. If you a pile of dirt show up at a certain place at a certain time, that dirt has a calendar. All right, so uh, vendors do too, not to confuse vendors with dirt. They have calendars, and they need to meet your calendar as well, so make sure that they do, and they can whatever timelines you have for your project they can cope with. Then there are change requests. Things are bound to change over time for one reason or another. Uh, you need to have some way to be able to address changes. You need a way to identify changes necessary. You need to write the change. You need to put the change through an approval process. And then you need to implement it. But with a contract, now that since it's a legal document binding against two parties, there's other stuff involved in there that you need to make sure that not only does all that stuff that I talked about a couple of seconds ago go through the perform integrated change control process, but you also need to make sure that it makes all the legal review that it needs to meet as well. I mean, so a lot of stuff there to pay attention to for change request. Let's move on to the next slide. And we have project management plan updates. These are the planning things that can be updated because you've changed something. It's an iterative process. You don't go through things just one time with progressive elaboration, you're building and building and building. So first time through, you're all set. Maybe the next second time through, you need to make change, small change, third time through, a bigger change. And these are some of the things that can change based on what's happening in your procurement. For the project management plan updates, what do they say about that table in Chapter 4? Look at the project management plan update lines there. There are cost baseline, scope baseline, schedule baseline, communications management plan, procurement management plan. Everything has the word baseline or plan after it. Drop down to the bottom of the slide, the project document updates output as well. Look at those. Requirements documentation, requirements traceability documentation, risk register, stakeholder register. You don't see the words baseline or plan after those guys, but they can still change. Okay? So just be aware of what's in which bucket and all these things can change in a procurement. Okay, so that's it for conduct procurements. I'll pause to see if there are any questions. Star 6 to meet your phone. Hearing nothing, I'm going to move on to the next process, second one of the session. We'll go faster through this one because there's less stuff in it. This is the control procurements process number 12.3. We're looking at the horizontal orientation of the ITTO boxes, and we see that there are six inputs seven tools and techniques, and five outputs. So let's move on to the next slide talk about those guys. And we're talking about controlling procurements. Basically, we're talking about monitoring what's going on with the vendor, making sure that they are providing what they said they're going to do when they said they were going to, at the quality they said they were going to. All right, and make sure all the requirements of the contract are actually met. All right, and if there's multiple vendors providing different pieces to your project, you've got to control them all. All right, so be aware of what needs to be coordinated because maybe something that vendor A does, different vendor from what we had in our waiting document, of what vendor A does impacts what vendor Q does or something along those lines. There is interaction there, in other words. So you have to be aware of those interactions and make sure that you manage those things, you control those things so that there are no surprises because surprises are generally bad and you don't like them. All right. So the more vendors you have, the more interaction there can be. So just be aware that you've got to watch a lot of stuff. And the big example down here, it's imperative that the project manager and project team are aware of any contract agreements that might impact the project so the team does not inadvertently take action that violates the terms of a contract. 
stated it very professionally, but basically watch out. If you're buying something from a vendor, make sure that your team's not doing anything that's going to mess you up and put you in a bind contract-wise. Right, we'll talk about contract binds in a little bit here. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about the inputs. As I mentioned, there are six of those guys. They are project management plan, procurement documents, agreements, approved change request, work performance reports, and work performance data. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll catch three of those. The first is project management plan. We've talked about project management plan a lot, and basically it's going to describe for procurements now, since we're talking about procurements, is how your procurement processes will be managed. We already talked about that pretty much already. And, and that's from the beginning all the way to procurement closure, contract closure. Okay, and then the documents themselves, the procurement documents, are going to be all the supporting stuff for the administration of the contract, the contract itself, any things that you need in order to make the contract work for you. And the statement of work is in there as well and a bunch of other things to make sure that your procurement will flow, if you will. Right? And then approve change request. As I mentioned, things are going to change. Now, because you approve something in the last process, now it becomes an input here, so that now you've got to implement this somehow. So as far as implementation in a procurement goes, you have to follow whatever is laid out in the agreement, whatever is laid out in the contract. So that's why having a detailed contract in an agreement is a good thing because then it's going to potentially describe how you can submit changes. And all procurement-related changes need to be formally documented. All changes, period, need to be formally documented. But there may be a different style, different format for a procurement. But make sure that it's documented in writing and approved before being implemented through the control procurements process. All right, let's move on to the next slide. Talk about agreements a little bit more. We did in the last uh, process. This is a slightly different take of what goes into an agreement. I'm going to split the information up. And basically, we already said it's a contract that's awarded to the selected seller, and it can be complex or it can be simple. Whatever the complexity is, it's going to be legally binding, so you have to be careful of what's in there. Make sure you have enough stuff in there to protect yourself. And if there's a problem, you're going to be subject to remedy in the court system, no matter where you are in the world. So be cognizant of whatever laws you have to pay attention to. And if you're looking to see what goes into an agreement, a procurement contract, there's a table here, four rows and five columns of stuff that can go in there. Section heading, statement of work, inflation adjustments, acceptance criteria, subcontractor approval, retainage, fees, limitation of liability, a whole bunch of stuff here. I'm not going to go through every single one of those. Take a look at the slide when you get a chance. And if you're building one of these things and for studying, make sure you have an idea what some of these things are so that you can state that they can go in agreement. Move on to the next slide, and we see work performance reports. Now, with a work performance report, these are basically reports from the seller going to you so that you can understand what it is they've been doing and that they are following along the letter of the contract, of the agreement that you have. So there are going to be some seller-developed technical documentation and other metrics, other deliverables, that you have in there, you've got a roadmap, you've got a baseline to follow. These things are going to be in there. This work performance data. This concerns the result itself and examining the deliverables, make sure they're all correct. It's the raw data. It's not much to do with raw data except munch it, add value to it, and turn it into work performance reports. That's the final result of adding value to work performance data. Data is the raw stuff. Reports is the process stuff, if you will. 
Are they doing the things that you expect them to do? You're monitoring their work results, looking at the deliverables. Are they up to quality standards? Are they up to volume standards, time standards, whatever it needs to be? And you need to work through all of that. Big exam bullet down here. The results you gather here are actually gathered as part of the director managed project work process, and you'll find that in the project integration knowledge area. This includes monitoring work results against the contract statement of work and any other portions that you need to pay attention to to make sure things are performed correctly and in sequence. Let's so move on to the next slide. Another little piece builds work performance data, and that's seller invoices. Sometimes your contract is going to be set up such that your seller is going to be paid a little at a time based on milestones or something else. They're not going to be paid all at once at the end or all at once at the beginning. So if you have a situation like that where the contract allows the seller to be paid at intervals, whatever those intervals are, you need to make sure that as the invoices come in, they're valid, that they have indeed done what you expect them to do at the quality and time you expected them to do that, and everything is correct so that you can pay them. And the second major example point down there is to remember that the seller invoices are an element of work performance data and not an output. There's no official seller invoice as an output from any place is the point of that bullet. So don't expect it to be one. There could be a trick question saying that seller invoices is an output of the director manager execution process. Well, it isn't. Right? And then the last big exam point down there, don't confuse seller invoices with the payment system, which is a tool and technique that we're going to get into in a moment. So seller invoices are just things that you receive in your project because you're using a vendor, Period. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll get into those tools and techniques of control procurements. There's seven of those guys. They are contract change control system, procurement performance reviews, inspection and audits, performance reporting, payment systems, claims administration, and records management system. Move on to the next slide. We'll talk about the contract change control system. This is yet another change control system that is obviously used only for contracts. It's different from the one you're using in your normal project. Why? Because mostly legal is involved in these things. So these are going to be more tuned toward how do you make changes to the contract. All right? It's a legal document, as we mentioned a couple of times, and changes require agreement of everybody involved, all the signatories, if you will. So you need a formal method, a formal process to authorize or deny changes. All right? And you want to keep it as formal as possible especially when it's around submitting change requests because there could be cost differences involved and maybe procedures for dispute resolution should be in there as well. And your change control system, along with all the management plan outputs, becomes part of the PERFORM integrated change control process as well. Moving on to the next slide, then we have procurement performance reviews. In this case, we're going to examine what the seller is doing, how they're doing so far in meeting the terms of the contract. They're halfway through, they've got four deliverables done, they need to do ten more or something like that. There's the last batch coming in quick sequence, so it's not five and five or something like that. They're not evenly spaced out. Right? So those reviews can take the form of a couple different things. It can be quality audit, it can be an inspection of documents as well as the product itself, maybe on-site visits to see what they're doing, how they're making something. And the point of the review is to determine where the seller is succeeding at meeting the scope and quality and cost and schedule and all that other stuff and where they're not, what they're doing right and what they're not doing right. Right? That's the way that boils down. And if they're not in compliance, then you've got to figure things out because 
PMI and PMBOK always said, you monitor, you monitor, you monitor, as long as things are in spec and control, you leave it alone. As soon as it goes out of control, you have to slap it back into control. That's the same story here. All right, so if they're not in compliance, you've got to do something about it. Use your remediation devices that we'll talk about in a little bit and see what you can do or figure out, get it back into compliance or terminate the contract somehow. Hopefully it's written in your contract that you can do that. So what you've got to use to measure all that stuff is this procurement statement of work. Look at what the procurement statement of work is and the terms of the contract and put all that stuff together and decide with the meeting it or not. If they are great, keep on going. Do it again in a month. Do it again in a quarter or whatever the case might be. And when an RFP is included as part of the contract, which it might be, then you can use that as well, whatever proposal you had there. Okay? Let's move on to the next slide. Then there are inspections and audits. These are actually looking to see what's going on, taking a look at what they're producing and making sure that it conforms to what you expect it to conform to your procurement statement of work. Okay, pretty easy. Then there's performance reporting. Once you're taking a look at all those inspections and audits and done all that stuff, you need to report out. Somebody needs to report out what's going on. Performance reporting. This entails providing your managers and stakeholders with information about the vendor's progress. So how are they doing? Pretty easy. Let management know, your stakeholders, this contract is progressing nicely or there's an issue here, there's an issue there. Then there are payment systems. Now, for a payment system, this basically is what are you going to use to issue payments to your sellers? They've met certain parts of the contract. Your payment schedule has laid out when they can be paid. Probably on a schedule somehow. They're not going to get everything up front. You're probably not going to wait till the very end either. So there's going to be a set of milestones, a set of deliverables that will be tied to payments. And make sure you know what those are so that you can issue the payment at the appropriate time because the seller will probably send you an invoice when they've reached that particular deliverable. Right? You're going to follow whatever policy and procedure your organization has established for paying vendors. Pretty easy. Moving on to the next slide. There's claims administration. Now, here's where things go messy. All right. So basically, up front, what you want to do is document how you're going to deal with issues and put that in there, and then how you're going to monitor them and how you're going to manage them so that when the time rolls on, you know what you're going to do. When you have a contested change or a contested portion of your contract, a contested change are the changes that you really cannot agree on. They usually involve a disagreement about compensation of a vendor for the most part. It can be something else too, but a lot of times it's all about money. Everything's about money, isn't it? They can also be called disputes, claims, or appeals. These can be settled either directly between the parties themselves. Just come there, let's figure this out. No sense in doing something stupid. Let's figure the whole thing out. No sense involving lawyers and paying lawyers, and we can do this on our own, come to some agreement. But if you have to, then you go to the court system. Or you go to something else that I'll talk about at the bottom of the slide called an alternative dispute resolution system, also called arbitration and mediation. And we'll get into that right now. Arbitration involves bringing in all parties to the table with a third disinterested party uh, that is not a participant in the contract and try to work out an agreement. And it's also part of mediation as well. It can be in there as well. So they bring the third party in. The difference between mediation and arbitration is the outcome, the decision of an outcome. In mediation, the mediator is trying to get everyone to a common ground. So you have agreement that here's what we're going to do, but the parties don't have to follow it if they don't want to. 
I mean, so a mediator just gets them close by. And if they can agree to things fantastic, they can move on. But if something happens and one decides to back out, then you've got an issue. And then you move to arbitration, which is sort of the same thing, except now the person, instead of a mediator, you have an arbitrator that is the third party, and that arbitrator makes the decision, I find for the buyer or I find for the seller. And that's it. There's no court involved because you've decided by going to a mediator or an arbitrator, you don't want to use the court system. And normally if you do that, if you go to an arbitrator for sure, then you agree to be bound by the arbitrator's decision. So you've got to make sure that you have all your ducks lined up, everything's lined up appropriately, so you will win that decision, if you will. All right, so the example that's down there, two big example. The first one is Pimbox says the preferred method of settling disputes is negotiation. So that means talking amongst each other first. If that doesn't work, then you move to the bottom example because when the parties cannot reach an agreement themselves, then they use an alternative dispute resolution process, ADR, move to mediation. If that doesn't work, then they use arbitration. Okay, so negotiation first. If you can't do it, then you move to, to alternative dispute resolution, okay, like mediation or arbitration. All right, let's move on to the next slide. And then as a record management system, how are you keeping track of things? It's going to, probably going to be part of your project management information system that you're using to manage all your projects. You can normally manage contract documents in those things as well. And it should contain things like project documentation, contract documentation, policies, control functions, automated tools, things like that. Okay. Let's move on to the next slide. And that's it for tools and techniques of control procurements. So any questions on those, star six to unmute your phone. Hearing nothing, I'm going to move on. And we'll talk about the outputs of control procurements. There are five of those. I'll read them off in case you're walking in the neighborhood or doing the dishes or the earning. They are work performance information, change requests, project management plan updates, project document updates, and organizational process assets updates. Let's move on to the next slide and begin the first one of those, which is work performance information. Now, this is going to include all the stuff around compliance to the contract. So you've looked at things, you've done an analysis, and yeah, they're in compliance or they're not in compliance. That's what all that means. It provides a basis for identification of any problems. If there are no problems, fantastic. If there are problems, then you need to identify those and document those as early in the process as possible, as early in the contract life as possible, so you can resolve them early so they don't cost you or the vendor a lot of money. All right, and the vendor performance reporting can impact a whole lot of different things. Procurement, performance management, they can improve forecasting, they can validate risk management, or they can facilitate decision-making. This is just four of the things that it can do. And it also helps in assisting when there's a dispute. You are going to produce 100 of these things. You've only produced 50, something along those lines. You can use actual performance information in order to make your point. All right, and bottom bullet down there, the contract compliance reports support improved communications with vendors so that potential issues are addressed promptly to the satisfaction of all parties. Find it and fix it right away is the point there. Okay, let's move on to the next slide. Then there are change requests. As you find things that need to be changed, you have to write up the change request in order to make that change. And all that stuff needs to be coordinated with the director managed project execution process and also the perform integrated change control process as well. 
so that all the stuff can flow through. And since we're talking about procurement, you use a special procurement change process in order to process all these things, if you will, and do whatever you need to do to make that happen. Contract changes will not always impact the project management plan. It's another thing to remember. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Let's move on to the next slide. There are project management plan updates. These are the little things on your 12th time, maybe not 12, but your 6th time or 4th time. Through the iterative cycle, you've found something you need to change, some part of the agreement that needs to change. So you're going to change it. Right? And then there's schedule baselines that you can change because there are slippages or improvements in the schedule as well. So your schedule is going to change, and the cost could change as well, depending upon what the change is all about. So you're going to update things as appropriate in both your schedule and your financials. Okay, move on to the next slide. And there are a bunch of project documents that you can update as well, given any changes that go on, the contract itself, performance information, warranties, schedules, as I've already mentioned, your list of approved and unapproved changes. It'll vary. The things are going to start off as an unapproved change. Eventually they will be approved, and then they need to be implemented to keep those lists together. Any payment schedules and requests, and the records management system is a wonderful place to keep all this stuff in one spot so you can find it. Okay, let's move on to the next slide. Then there's organizational process asset updates. These are mainly the payment schedules and requests themselves. You can change these things so that they're OPAs and not EEFs. But basically, once you have your schedule laid out, you need to make sure you meet it. And there's three big example that's down here. It's almost always your responsibility as a project manager to verify that the vendor's work meets the expectations. So if you have a procurement and accounts payable department, you as the project manager has to look at those reports, at the output that was provided, say, yes, that meets the requirement, that meets the milestone for the first payment. You let the procurement department know who releases to accounts payable and the first invoice is paid. And so it's a flow is the way that works out. And you make sure you do all that within the time constraints laid out by the contract, by the agreement. You know, the first payment must be made within 60 days or something like that, whatever the case might be. The second example there is the PIMBOX states that the payment schedules and request element pertains to payment systems that are external to the project. Right? So when we go through accounts payable, that's probably not something that you're controlling. Right? So if you're in a big company with a purchasing department and a separate accounts payable department, you're telling them, okay, here's when you can pay this. They have the schedule, and you tell them to go pay it. That's what that bullet's all about. And the final bullet down here, which is the other tact, if you will, if you don't have a procurement department and an accounts payable department and it's just you and you're managing all the procurements and the payments, then this output is just called payments. Right, so instead of payment schedules and requests, it's just payments. Right, so it depends. So here's an exam question, if you will. At the end, you have a purchasing and accounts payable department. What is the appropriate output for control procurements? And they'll have payment schedules and requests, and they'll have payments. And they have two other things that won't matter. So the correct answer here, because they told you that there is a procurement and an accounts payable department, the correct answer is payment schedules and requests because it's an external to your project set of departments. Okay? And then other things that can be an OPA in the OPA update bin, any correspondence that you've done. Maybe you've got some sample letters, sample reports 
that you've written up for your project that you want to stick in the OPA bin for other people to use. You can change those as you need to. You pulled it from the bin, you used it, you changed it, now you put it back in the bin. Right? And any seller performance evaluation checklist, forms, anything along those lines. Basically just a written record of how they're doing, but it might be handy for other people to use. So as you create them, the seller performance evaluation forms, templates, whatever the case might be, put them in the OPA bin and make sure that you use them because you want to make sure that the worker is satisfactory and the seller wants to be paid. And another good thing to put in there is your opinion. Should they be used for future work in the company, for further work later on? You can put those evaluations right in your qualified seller list if you want. And remember, don't confuse payment systems, which is a tool and technique of control procurements with the payment and schedules that we just finished talking about as that example that I talked about, right, is an output of control procurements. One is a tool and technique and one is an output. Don't confuse them. And payment systems includes the reviews and authorization to issue that check, the almighty check that the seller wants to see. And payment schedules and request output is where the check gets actually sent to the seller. Okay. So that's it for that process for control procurements. I'll stop, see if there's any questions. Star 6, 10, meet your phone. Let's move on to the next slide. We've got a few slides left and we're done. Now we're going to talk about the last process, closed procurements, number 12.4. We're looking at the horizontal orientation of the ITTO boxes, and we see there are two inputs, three tools and techniques, and two outputs, less stuff in closing things out because all the bulk of the work is done, and we're just on the tail end of things here and the tail end of this session. So let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk generally about closing procurements. Two big exam points down here, the first being the closed procurements process is concerned with completing and settling the terms and conditions of the contract. Right? Very explicit language to make sure that everything is proceeded correctly and you are satisfied with the outcome. Product verification has been done. It's, it works. It's as you expect it to be. That procurement documentation that we talked about is an input to both the closed project or phase process and the closed procurement process as well. It's all the same stuff, if you will. And the big example, the second big example down here is during project closing. If you work at a company that uses a weak matrix organization, the people tend to experience the least amount of stress. Why? Because the procurement is coming to a close, which means their portion of the project might be coming to a close, which means their job is coming to a close. But in a weak matrix organization, you might remember that these people still report to their functional manager. The weak matrix, there's, there's a drafting department, there's a machining department, there's a IT department, there's all these other departments, and you're just borrowing resources from that department to build your project. So they still report to the functional manager, and like any good functional manager, they're already looking at the next thing for this person to do. So they're not worried about being out of a job once this is done. Right? So let's be aware of that as well. So let the next slide, four more examples here. The closed project or phase process verifies and documents the project outcomes just as the closed procurements process does for procurements. All right, so one is for procurements and one is for the whole project, but they both do sort of the same thing is the point of that bullet. Next bullet, many projects do not include contracted work, so not all the projects require closed procurements. We mentioned that back in the last process. You should always do the planning procurement management process and the result of that might be we're not doing any procurements, and you don't have to do any of these other things like that second bullet just says. 
And then finally, the third one down here, third exam point, all projects actually require the closed project or phase process. We just said that, didn't I, without even looking at the bullet. So you have to do that one no matter what. And then the fourth bullet down here, exam point, is because verification and documentation of the project outcomes occur in both of these processes. Projects that are performed under contract need to have project results verified only one time. All right, so what that means is if you have a procurement and you've got everything done and you close out the procurement, you don't have to redo the steps when you're closing out the project because they've already, you've already done them. Okay, so there's one time where iteration does not apply, if you will. You cycle down through, you say, oh, did it already, don't have to do any more, and with that, then you're done. Okay, we want the next slide. Let's go and look at the inputs. There's only two of them, as I mentioned, so we're just going to go right to it. They are project management plan and procurement documentation. So under project management plan, we see that this is where the procurement management plan lives. We sort of knew that already, didn't we? Because that's where all the stuff comes from, if you will. So we want to make sure that we know exactly what guidelines we're going to be following for our procurements. We get it from there. And then there's procurement documentation. And that includes the contract or the agreement itself and all the supporting stuff that goes along with it. And make sure you have everything there, including work breakdown structure, schedules, change control documents, technical stuff, payment records, and quality control stuff, risk registers, all the other stuff that you might have to have in there. And then this information, along with all the other stuff in your project, you really, really want, to, want to put it someplace. Let's put it in something we're going to call a project repository or a procurement file or something along those lines. Put it in one place because it's procurement-related. You don't want all your procurement stuff strewn all about your project. Find a spot to put it and put it all together, all right? So you can find it later on when you're going to close things out and the like, all right? So that's why it's an input here, because you've already got a, hopefully got a bin set up already. There's a big example down here. Procurement documentation is an input to both the closed project or phase and the closed procurement process. We've heard that a couple of times now, but they want to make sure that for the exam you know about it. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll get to the tools and techniques. There are three of those, so we have a separate list. They are procurement audits, procurement negotiations, and records management system. So let's move on to the next slide, talk about those first. Procurement audits. These are basically where you're going to, as we've sort of talked about already, look at the work that's been done, and now you're going to make sure whether it meets everything. All right? Perform correctly according to standards. The PMBOK guide example here says procurement audits are concerned with reviewing the procurement process starting with planning procurement management all the way up to control procurements. So the whole flow, if you will, make sure it's all there. All right. And then the second example there, the primary purpose of procurement audit is to identify lessons learned during the procurement process itself. So make sure you capture all those lessons learned, stick them in the lessons learned bin. And you can also look at the process itself. Make sure your procurement process works. Maybe you need to tweak something in your process to make it flow better. You, know, you can always do that whenever you want because if you make a mistake, you don't want to keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. And then on the bottom, procurement audits might be used by either the buyer or the vendor or by both as an opportunity for improvement. And so don't look at them as a bad thing is the point there. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about negotiations. These occur when a dispute arises about deliverables, payments, performance, things along those lines. This is not the beginning stuff because the beginning stuff was not in the closed procurement process. Now, we've been managing procurements for a while, 
So you might have to negotiate some things in order to formally say, okay, this, this contract is completed. We do closure negotiations here, not initial negotiations. These are closure negotiations. And, again, negotiation is the primary resolution method. But if that fails, you're going to go back to your alternative dispute resolutions or ADR techniques, mediation and arbitration. Okay? And when all else fails, you go into the courts. All right? And then there's the records management system. As we mentioned before, this serves the same function as it did before. And it's a place to store all this stuff. Here's your procurement file that I talked about. Keep all this stuff there so that you can find it when you need it. And you don't have to worry about, okay, where did I put this, where did I put that type of thing. You know, it's much more easier to do it that way. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. And we'll get two outputs and then we're done. Those two outputs are closed procurements and organizational process asset updates. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about closed procurements. Now we're done. Now we've actually closed things out from our end, from the buyer end. Now we should probably tell the seller, hey, we've closed things out. We're done. The contract is complete. Here's your final payment. Thank you very much. Goodbye and good luck type of stuff. It's your responsibility if you are the project manager to document all this stuff. It's formal acceptance. It's completed. You've signed off on everything. If you have a separate procurement department, then they'll probably help with the contract administration and do some of that stuff for you. But you'll have to tell them to tell the vendor. But you can do that and just whatever process you happen to need to do there. And then depending on the terms of the contract, if there's early termination for whatever reason, there may be additional charges for the buyer or for the seller too. You never know, but mostly for the buyer. If the early termination normally impacts the buyer more. And make sure you notice, if you are doing early termination, why you're doing the early termination. And maybe note that in the qualified seller list as well. You have to do early termination because of X, and that will help the next project manager coming along not to fall in the same trap, if you will. Moving on to the next slide. Then we have some OPA updates, organizational process assets updates, things like the procurement file, the contract file that I talked about already, the location to keep stuff, hopefully in the record management system. So keep it someplace where you can easily access it, cross-reference it as necessary, and uh, so you can do your closeout phases easily. Deliverable acceptance is another thing. What deliverables are there? What criteria are you using in order to accept the deliverables? Make sure you know what's happening there. And then the bottom down there, uh, lessons learned. Documentation, you should always capture lessons learned, no matter what you do. It's always a good thing to do what you experience, get all that stuff in there, and help the person following behind you is the best way to say that. All right? Let's take all that stuff in your project file. And then for the last slide here, other than the question slide, in practice, there's three things you want to remember. Two of these are examples. First example, the PMBOK no longer states that the closed project or phase process should be performed before the closed procurement process. It used to be that way. They smartened up, and they know that a procurement can end before the project ends, and you don't have to keep the procurement going for another X amount of time while you're waiting for the project to complete. They recognize they can be independent, right? So you might see that in the exam. And then the second example down here is you'll likely close out procurements before closing out the project and archiving everything. So be ready to do it ahead of time. But there's going to be some times if you're totally buying things, they might close at the same time. But you never know. But just be ready, as in practice, you'll probably do closing procurements first. And so those two examples go together. And the third bullet down here, and the end of what we're going to be talking about tonight, is that this contract procurement file 
I was talking about this output thing is a really strong OPA. So you really want to make sure that you keep that in your uh, in your organizational process assets because you might have another project coming along that you're going to need some of this stuff for. You can reuse some of these things. Right? So just make sure that you have it around and you can access it. Right? Speaking of accessing things, let's uh, access the last slide here. It says questions. I've unmuted all your lines. Are there any questions out there from anybody? All right, hearing no questions, I'm going to move on and go to my outro, and we will close out the session. So uh, I'll remind you that PM Lessons Learns conducts three conference calls each month. This is the monthly PMP exam study group conference call and podcast that we're on right now because it is the first Thursday of the month. When we're at full strength, we'd love to have on the second Thursday of each month our PM Lessons Learned Job Shop call. So we need people to run that. And finally, on the third Thursday of each month, we'd love to hold our PM Lessons Learned Best Practices call. We'd love to have people to help out there so we can provide presentations on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. Okay, so that's it for this session of the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Call and Podcast. I'll again thank the live participants on this conference call and everyone that downloads and uses the podcast. We're up well over 50,000 downloads now over the years we've been doing this and doing very well on the 5th edition stuff as well. So thank you, all of you, for your support. And I'll remind you that we are pmlessonslearn.com, project managers helping project managers to make a difference. My name is Dana Safford. So long and keep on learning. This has been a PM Lessons Learned podcast. Project managers helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Come join our group. Visit our website at pmlessonslearned.com. Till next time, keep on learning.